Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Anyway, so today's uh, passage, we're looking at Nehemiah, and uh, it talks about a change in profession. And I can understand where Nehemiah is coming from. Uh, yesterday morning, I nearly completely changed my career path. On Friday, uh, I went for an impromptu late night out with a friend and went uh, disco dancing. Uh, 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 that's right. Uh, it was more dad dancing than disco dancing. And uh, I woke up uh, in the morning with an extremely low voice. And uh, I thought every cloud has its silver lining. Uh, if it stayed, I could leave the teaching profession. And uh, I had a very promising career as a Barry White uh, tribute act. Now, I feel there are some other obstacles that I might need to get over. But I, I felt I was well on the way. But uh, fortunately, uh, or unfortunately, uh, it hasn't stayed, and my voice is now audible to human hearing. Uh, yeah. But uh, if I slip back into sub-bass at any point, and there's some dogs start wandering around, you'll know why. Anyway, we need to uh, get back into Nehemiah, because we've had a couple of weeks off, haven't we? And so chapter one, in a nutshell, is here. Nehemiah is a Jewish exile in Babylon, which is now under Persian rule. He receives word from his brother, Hanani, that Jerusalem is in a mess. Uh, the wall that protects the city has been broken down and the gates have been burnt down. So the city is completely open to attack. And Nehemiah is gutted about this and he cries and mourns for several days. He fasts and calls out to God about the situation. Uh, and then at the end of the, of the chapter, very interestingly, he reveals his occupation and he is uh, the cupbearer to the king of Persia. So we're going to uh, get up to speed. We're going to read today's passage. So go, Chris. In the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took, wine, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Now, I, I think there are kind of three things that jump out at me while studying this passage. They're calling, timing, and prayer. Now, Nehemiah obviously feels called to intervene in the situation in Jerusalem. Uh, just a quick summary of chapter 1 shows how personally he took the news of the broken walls and the burned gates of the city. 
There's a clear parallel with another Old Testament story, the story of Esther, where with a Jew finding favor in Persian royalty and then using this influence to help God's chosen people in a time of trouble and to further his kingdom. It says in Esther 4, verse 14, when Mordecai, her, her kind of uncle, is kind of looking after her, isn't he? And he says, uh, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And I think that Nehemiah clearly feels that he's a chosen person to deal with the rebuilding of Jerusalem due to his position of favor with King Artaxerxes. Now, this is quite a big deal, as we've kind of alluded to in my comedy start. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, a well-respected wine waiter. It's like one of those episodes of one of my favorite TV programs, Grand Designs, where the guy who's a solicitor takes on the role of project manager to save cash. He's not really what, he, you know, what they're meant to be doing. It generally ends in disaster there, but it doesn't here. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, anyway, uh, I digress. But what did Nehemiah know about protecting temples and building walls? Now, I wanted an image to illustrate this, and uh, I asked my, my, my good lady wife, I said, uh, can you give me a, a famous waiter? And she came up with Manuel. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Manuel from Faulty Towers. Now, maybe it's a little bit disrespectful to Nehemiah to say that he's like Manuel from Faulty Towers going back to Barcelona to finish the Gaudi Temple, the uh, yeah, Gaudi Cathedral. So... It's, yeah, it's not really. I think the favor that Nehemiah gets from Artaxerxes is a lot stronger than what Manuel gets from Basil Fawlty. Uh But you get the idea of the massive change in what's going on here. There's this one role, and he's actually doing going to be something completely different. And I would venture that Nehemiah didn't know the first thing about walls and fortifications. But God had put this on his heart, and he was obedient to God's call. Now, Nehemiah's got to be pretty confident about his good standing with the king because what he's actually asking is in direct contradiction to an order that this same king, Artaxerxes, gave in the book of Ezra. Now, in Ezra chapter 4, there's a record that the king ordered the repair work on the walls to be stopped. This was in response to a letter of complaint sent by some Samaritans who were in opposition to the returning Jews. Uh, the complaint letter, which is recorded in Ezra chapter 4, is a, like a biased document uh, that is used to scaremonger the king into accusing uh, Judah of being a rebellious nation and also incorporates a threat that the king will lose money from the Jews not paying taxes if the walls are rebuilt. And the king falls for it. Uh, his response is this. Uh, I issued an order and a search was made and it was found that the city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tributes and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests. And so, why is this important? It's important because Nehemiah is going to go to the king and say, I want you to change your mind. I want you to do the complete opposite of what you said. Because the king says, no more wall building for rebellious people. And Nehemiah is going to ask for the opposite. Now, one of the reasons why I think that Nehemiah feels called about this situation is actually, there's nobody else to do this. There's no other Jew who is in the privileged position to have access to the king. 
Never mind who has a good relationship with him. Nehemiah's years of loyal service are about to be put to good use by God. And in fact, I think Nehemiah's loyalty is what is going to push back this idea of rebellion. And so he's got this idea, the Jews are rebellious, but actually Nehemiah hasn't been rebellious. He's been obedient to the king. But Nehemiah's calling is not just about his position. I believe it's also about his knowledge. Now, having looked at this, I think Nehemiah is a diplomatic genius. Notice, he doesn't say the word or the name Jerusalem. I think Nehemiah is careful not to rouse the king's anger. And uh, he doesn't name the city, but refers to it as the city where my fathers are buried. Now, it's interesting, because this particular line of Persian kings had started a custom of burying their dead relatives. Persians had this strange thing where they were, if their relatives were dead, they'd have a big kind of prayer service, but then they'd let them be like eaten alive by, well, eaten alive, they're dead, they're dead, but eaten by like wild animals. It's a bit weird, isn't it? But these Persian kings had decided, no, that's not good. We're going to bury our, our dead. And so Nehemiah uses this knowledge to gain favor with the king. And so by referring to the burial grounds, Nehemiah finds a similarity of beliefs with the king and it builds trust and goodwill. Now, timing. I think uh, the first thing we're actually told in this entire chapter, isn't it, is the, uh, is the, is the month, Nissan. So that's not a Japanese car manufacturer, that's Nissan. And uh, this information is significant because it's been four months since Hanani told Nehemiah about the walls of Jerusalem in chapter one. It's a significant time. Nehemiah has had time to pray, time to fast, and time to consider what to do about the situation. Here in chapter 2, Nehemiah recognizes his opportunity. The scene is possibly a party, and Nehemiah is serving his, uh, the king as the royal cupbearer. Now, remember, Nehemiah is gutted. He's absolutely devastated about this news, and it's been four months. But interestingly, the text says that Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of the king before. You know, one reason might be, you know, grumpy servants don't really bring the party atmosphere and also probably get fired. But why does Nehemiah choose to be sad now? Now, some commentators believe that this is a party where the king grants requests of those he favors. If so, Nehemiah may have planned this whole thing uh, and planned the timing of his revelation so to coincide with the possibility of getting favor with the king. Now, timing is also significant with the request that Nehemiah makes, isn't it? As soon as the king's on board, he says, it pleased the king to send me. As soon as he's on board, Nehemiah uh, makes further requests about safe travel and building materials. He strikes while the iron is hot, doesn't he? The king's actions show he's susceptible to changing his mind. I think Nehemiah was aware that he had to act quickly to see his plans through. And get all his requests in before the king can kind of decide against his original decision. And then the third thing is prayer, isn't it? I think one thing we can really take from this, you know, the first two chapters of Nehemiah is a call to pray. Everything that God achieves through Nehemiah is born out of prayer. Nehemiah has done some serious praying. In chapter 1, it documents, doesn't it, the deep soul searching he does after hearing the news from Jerusalem. Nehemiah does the work in his heart before approaching the king. He declares the sinful nature of his home family and of himself. But Nehemiah also recognizes his opportunity to bring change. He prays for success with the king to gain favor. He lays it all out before the Lord. 
Now, I think much of what Nehemiah actually does in this passage and what he says has come from hours of prayer and fasting. In verse 7, after the king gives his uh, approval, as we've said, he, gets, he says you can go to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah quickly makes those further requests for safe passage through the region and to build the gates. And I, I don't think he thought about that on the spur of the moment. I think he prayed it through. I think he had prepared what he needed for the task and he thought about where he could get it from. But also, Nehemiah doesn't just pray one kind of prayer, does he? You see, he doesn't just do the long, kind of deep prayers of repentance. He does the quick fire prayers too. In verse 4 in chapter 2, it says, uh, The king said to me, what do you want? And then Nehemiah says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. In between being asked the question, Nehemiah prays to God before he answers. And it's a great little snapshot, isn't it? Because it shows that Nehemiah wants God to be involved in the situation. And in fact, in the very moment, he constantly wants God to be with him to help him. For Nehemiah, prayer is the place he goes to first, whatever the situation. When he receives bad news, he prays. And when he gets the chance to get the favor that he's been waiting for, he prays again. In my kind of time, I've used uh, a few quick-fire prayers. Uh, there was a particular time when I was driving down the M1. And uh, we're driving down the M1, coming back from Birmingham with the kids and uh, my good lady wife beside me. And uh, we're driving, and Helen said, uh, they, they're pulling out, they're pulling out. I was like, oh no, this person had obviously not seen me. I was in their blind spot. And I pulled the car to one side, and, uh, but they clipped me. And they caught me at the back of the car. And if, if this has ever happened to you, this is how policemen stop cars, kind of, uh, you know, your joyriders. Because it hits the back and you completely lose control of the car. We careered over three lanes of M1 traffic down an embankment that was probably not as high as that. Maybe as high as where, like the, the bottom of those railings. So we're going down this embankment. I said some quick-fire prayers right then. In fact, I called on the name of the Lord, and I can testify to this passage in Joel chapter 2. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was a, it was a hairy moment, but it, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing time. But for me, the ideas of calling and timing and prayer came together when actually I applied for my, my job at Abbey Grange. I was working in the CLC, which is actually the building on the side of this building. Uh, so it's one that looks like a wave. And uh, I applied for an internal promotion uh, at that job, but didn't get it. And as the other candidates had much more experience. And that was fair dues. And, and then I was approached to uh, teach in a different school, but I realized it wasn't right because uh, I, I didn't have the experience that they required of me at that time. Now, the day after I'd said, oh, I'm not going to do this, uh, I thought, I'll have a look on the, the TES website. That's the, the website where you, you find out about jobs. Now, I'd never, ever done this before. I'd never thought, oh, I'll think about moving. I, I just didn't think about it. But I thought, oh, I'll have a look. Now, alphabetical order, the Lord uses it. Uh, Abbey Grange was at the top of the list. There it was sticking out. I was like, right. Now, if you know me and you know how much I fear change, uh, you, you know, you'll realize that although I was going for a new job, it was my old high school. So uh, the Lord met me there, yeah, in the middle. Now, but I, I prayed a lot about it, and, uh, and it felt right. So I decided to go for the job, 
I did a lot of preparation. I'd never gone for a teaching post before. I had to uh, teach a lesson. I had to meet with the student council. I had to have an informal chat with the deputy head, which wasn't so informal. And then had to have an interview with the, the head teacher, the chair of governors, and the head of performing arts. Now, in between each of the tasks, I was just sending off quickfire prayers. I was like, Lord, if, if this is not the place I should be, please close the doors. Make me slip up. Make them not like me. Make it obvious I shouldn't be here. But if it's right, open the doors. Help me to be my best. Inspire me with the answers I give. Help me to be calm through the day. Now, as you might have guessed, the day went fairly well and I got the job. But the next year was tough. By the second day in school, I was like overwhelmed. I remember driving to school thinking, what have I done? I had a great number. I had my own little studio. I had like, you know, people fixing stuff for me. I had like instruments that worked, guitars with strings on them. It was ace. But the, the thing was, at school, I had opportunities to witness for God that I would never have had at the CLC. In school, I could help people in a, in a way that I could never have done. I could never have journeyed with people like I do now. I had a chance to grow in knowledge, in experience, and most of all, reliance on God. And it's probably the first time when there's a, a passage in James chapter 1 uh, that made any real sense to me. It says, uh, It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then there's a, I really like the message version, because it just just kind of teases something out. It says, consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open, and it shows its true colours. It's another bit. So don't get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. And as we read through the rest of the book, as we're going to do, we'll realize that Nehemiah must have had days when he thought this task was too great, these obstacles too much. But his faith in God and in the calling that God had given him produced great perseverance. So, what does this all mean for us as a church? And so think about this word calling. It can feel like a big deal, can't it? it? Like you need to be zapped on high to do a particular thing. And while some people do have the experience of, uh, of God really kind of placing something on their hearts and kind of dramatically, it wasn't like that for me. Calling for me is a particular role or vocation that is right and it's in God's will. And I feel like one of our problems can be how we perceive the concept of like a big calling, like the idea of being sent to Africa or like working full time in a church. You know, they're great things, but that's not everything. Calling can end up being this big thing that like only other people get. You know, the holy ones who, who pray a lot and can recite stuff from the Bible off by heart. And then, but then calling can be something we become desperate to have. Unless we have this big project from God, then we can feel like we're missing out or that we're not good enough. Then, then this calling can end up validating us, which is, I don't think that's what God wants either. Plenty of people have been given big visions from God, and that's great. But it's not the same for everyone. 
It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. Nehemiah has a clear calling from God. And he ends up playing a massive role in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But there are lists of people who get behind Nehemiah's actions. Uh, They were called just as he was. Without everyone pulling together, the walls would never have been built. In fact, the entirety of chapter 3 is a long list of people who would play their part in building the wall. So we've got Miamoth, son of Uriah, and Meshulam, son of Berechiah. All those people. Now, what I really like is there's a particular... uh, the men of Tekoa, uh, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under their supervisors. It's like they've been named in shame for thousands of years because they're going to get out of bed that day. It's brilliant. But like Nehemiah has a personal call, doesn't he? And I believe that also we've got personal calls from God. I believe that I've got a number of callings that make up the different parts of my life. As I mentioned earlier, I've been, I feel I've been called to work at Abbey Grange High. Uh, now, some days I feel that call stronger than others. Some days it's not as strong, but I still go. Uh, but I've got other callings. I, yeah, it, yeah, I feel called to live here in Beeston. Now, it's become a bit of a running joke, as I haven't lived anywhere, anywhere else very much. And it's a bit funny, but I love it here. I totally want to see God's kingdom move powerfully in this place. And as part of that, uh, me and Helen have, have been helping with a, a youth group called Space for about 10 years now. And it's, it's nothing amazing. It's just we give up a few hours uh, out of our week to hang out with some teenagers, play a bit of table tennis, and try to show them who God is. Another particular calling I'm trying to develop is uh, being a good husband and uh, a good father. Can't say I've got this one sewn up just yet, but I'm getting plenty of practice. Now, uh, now one of the ways I'd like us to respond today is to think about our own personal calling. It doesn't have to be the idea of building a wall around Leeds or even Beeston. Uh, I don't want us to get caught up in thinking about the size or a hierarchy of callings. I think when we think like that, we start thinking less like God and we start thinking more like the world. Whatever God has put on your heart is what he has for you now. If you feel like you don't have a calling, today's the perfect time to petition to God. What do you want me to do? God can use you wherever you are wherever you are, whatever you're doing, to build this kingdom. Now, we're going to come back to that. So, talk a bit about timing. I think timing is probably one of the most difficult concepts of faith for me. God's timing. There's been many occasions where I felt frustrated because I've had plans, but it didn't come to fruition because it was in my timing and not in God's. There are two quotes that kind of spring to mind. Uh, Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house... The builders labor in vain. And then Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, these don't mean that we can't want the same things as God. Of course we can. The problem is, is that we see them in a human way. And it's like looking at a landscape painting that would like take up the entire wall, but like kind of through a keyhole. God sees the whole vista in intricate detail and its perfect beauty. We need to wait on the Lord, don't we? To be mindful, not to hold our plans so tightly that we can end up hurting ourselves and hurting others. We need to hold these things lightly and allow God to move and to bring his purposes to fruition. Now, having said this as well, then 
there's another side to timing, isn't there? Because when the door was open to Nehemiah, it didn't like dilly-dally. He sensed God was moving and he followed his lead. This actually is probably the hardest concept for me because I've come to realize that I'm possibly the most cautious person I know. This year, having a leadership role at school has just highlighted that I don't like to make decisions quickly. But actually, I need to trust God. And when he tells me to wait, I need to wait. And when he tells me to go, I need to follow his lead. And then finally, prayer. In my short time of looking at this part of Nehemiah's life, it's shown me that he was somebody who completely understood the the importance of prayer. His response to calamity was prayer. His response to good fortune was prayer. I believe he would have covered himself in prayer almost every day like Daniel, another Babylonian exile whose devotion to prayer got him thrown into a lion's den because he wouldn't obey a law that prohibited him from doing so. We need to follow this example. We need to bring God into our lives more and more. As Nehemiah brings God right into the discussion with Artaxerxes, we need to bring God into our everyday. But this isn't an Old Testament idea, is it? This isn't just something that was kind of there. Jesus is the ultimate prayer warrior, isn't he? Making time to talk with his father, even though in a wonderful mystic way, he was also God. You know, there are times where he gets up early and he goes and you know, sets himself apart on a hillside and meets with his father. But also there's a point where he prays out loud to, to guide his disciples. There's a great point where he raises Lazarus and he says, I'm saying this so that these people can hear me. And it's a beautiful moment because he's saying, hear me speaking to my father. Hear me model what this is like, this relationship. And as we pray for help, for wisdom, for strength, we invite God into our lives, don't we? And as we do that, we start to see the world as God sees it. And we've got to do the different types of prayer, haven't we? We've got to do the, uh, the soul searching. You know, what have you got for me, Lord? We've got to do the prayers of confession. We, we fess up our shortcomings, our mistakes to our loving and forgiving Father. We've got to do the prayers of praise, haven't we? The prayers that say, thank you, Father, for everything you've done for us. We've got to thank him for Jesus, for his sacrifice for us on the cross that pays for our sins. And we've got to do the quick fire prayers, haven't we? The prayers that invite God into our every day. The prayers that remind us that God wants to be involved in everything that we do. Now, I'm going to invite the band back up. And uh, we're going to respond this morning in uh, potentially a practical way. There's an invitation. Invitation to pray about your personal calling. And it might be for you, you're like, I know where I'm at. I know God's given me this purpose and I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. And that's great. But it might be for you actually like, this is the first time I've even thought about this. It might be you're, you're, you're a visitor. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I haven't decided to follow Jesus. Then please kind of watch us model this. See what we do. And what I want us to do is, I want us to pray about what we think God has got for us. And I, as we pray, I'd love us to, uh, to write it down. I've got some post-its over here. And uh, we're going to get uh, uh, a screen out. Do you want to grab that, Dan? Thanks. And I'd like us to, whatever it is that we've got, whatever we feel. And it might, be, it might not even be that you've got the calling. It might be that actually the prayer is, Lord, I'm open. I want to receive what you've got for me this morning. 
then that prayer is completely valid. And what I'd like us to do is kind of build our own little wall. As Nehemiah is called to build the wall around Jerusalem, I'd, li- I'd like our prayers of calling to, be, to build on here. And so we're going to have a bit of time, a bit of time to pray about it, a bit of time to, to, you know, to talk about it through with the Lord. And then when you feel ready, then please come and grab a post-it, grab a pen, write your prayer and bring it. And I'll pray uh, for us and then we'll, we'll sing. Father God, we thank you for this message that you've given through Nehemiah. Lord, I thank you that you put a calling on his life and we can see the model that he's given us and that we want to follow it, Lord. We, and Lord, we thank you that he was, uh, his power came from prayer to you, Father God, that you blessed him. Lord, open our hearts this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, be impacting us now, that you'd be stirring in us. If we've got a calling already, Father, I pray that you would, uh, yeah, consolidate it. And Lord, if we, if we don't know where we're going, Lord, we look to you for vision. We look for you to you for direction. Come to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.